Hello and welcome to the Local Government Leaders podcast from Public Intelligence and the MJ. My name is Mike Bennett. This third episode features a conversation with Dr Barry Quirk when we met recently in an office in central London. Barry is the Chief Executive of the London Borough of Lewisham, a post he has held since November 1993, making him the longest serving local government Chief Executive in the UK. As as well as his role in Lewisham, Barry has held numerous national appointments. These include a four-year term as a non-executive director on the board of HM Revenue and Customs, being an independent member of two capability reviews of the Treasury, serving five years as National Efficiency Champion for English local government, and in 2007, Barry carried out a review for government on the potential transfer of public assets to community groups. Barry made a huge contribution to SOLAS, the Association for Local Government Chief Executives across the UK, where I worked with him for many years when he was first president and then chairman of the society. Among his other garlands is a winner's medal from the MJ's poll of the most impressive UK chief executive. Barry's doctorate is in social and political geography. He's on the Council of Goldsmiths College and he's an associate of the Independent Institute for Government. His book, Reimagining Government, was published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2011. In our discussion, we cover the history of the last 40 years of London local government, looked at through the prism of Barry's extraordinary career, and we talk, among other things, about how perceptions of chief executives have changed across that time, from dilettante to Jedi Knights to zeros. After welcoming Barry to the Local Government Leaders podcast, I began by asking him about his upbringing in South London. Barry, good to see you. Hello, and welcome to Local Government Leaders. Hi, Mark. So, growing up in Bermondsey, in Uh, South London, in the 1950s and 60s, mm -hmm. when did you first have an inkling that um, you might find a career in local government? Well, I never imagined this when I was growing up. Uh, Furthest from my thoughts was what I was going to do for a living. Um, All of my family were in the print, um, uh, and... Um, I uh, went to school in East London, um, and, but lived in Bermondsey in South London, so I literally travelled across the Thames. This was unheard of uh, at the time, to travel across the Thames to go to school, um, but I so did. Why was that? Um, because I, I wanted to go to the school at the, uh, as a child. Um, so when I was 10, I was uh, told um, that I'd been allocated a particular school in, in Greenwich, and, and I said, but it's a boys-only school. I don't want to go to a boys-only school. It seems to me I, w- I want to go to a school that's co-educational. This was considered rather outrageous by um, my school teacher. but I had uh, two sisters and I lived with my mother. And the idea of going to a school with only boys, I thought was just terrible. Um, and so I went to the, the closest school I could that was co-educational that was in Stepney in East London. And I absolutely uh, enjoyed it. Um, I never got to think about my career, um, uh, what I would be doing. Really, I was thinking about how to Im- improve my personal education and, and to play a lot of sport, really. Um, mm. That was it. That's what energised me, sport and education. And you were always a high achiever in education? Um, relative, relatively reasonably, yes. I think from the age of about 10, um, um, and I probably, uh, I would say, I was, I can remember people always saying to me, you've got an old, old head on your shoulders. And I used to think, what do they mean, an old head on your shoulders? But even, I remember people saying that to me, that to me when I was, you know, before I was a teenager. Mm. Um, but I, I did achieve relatively well at, at school, but not high. Uh, I went to school in Stepney. We didn't have high ambitions set for us by the, uh, our school. Um, but I achieved probably higher in sport than I did in education, mm. to be honest. Mm. Thinking about um, where you where you grew up, I heard you tell the story uh, about the smell of your childhood, oh, yeah. vinegar and tanneries. I first grew up in Guinness's buildings in Bermondsey, and we then were moved by the Great London Council. My uh, mother and I got us to move uh, to Bethnal Green, where we lived for about two years before we came back to Bermondsey again. And so uh, local government, I suppose, impinged on me because I lived on uh, council housing estates from probably from the age of nine before then we were in Guinnesses. So, um, but only in relation to um, uh, housing, because at the time, education 
wasn't um, a local government function, it was an inner London education function. And, and in fact, I, the school I went to was a separate foundation. It wasn't even part of the ILEA. At school, you, what was it you liked about school? Was it the ideas? Was it learning uh, in itself? What, what were the particular subjects that attracted you? Um, anything to do with, uh, which wasn't, didn't involve rote memory. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> um, uh, where you had to uh, think differently um, and um, think laterally, I suppose. I quite liked um, uh, arguments. Um, I quite liked engaging in arguments. Um, but I also particularly liked um, natural sciences, so zoology, geology, and so on. So I, I was drawn to natural sciences, but not because I wanted to understand um, uh, natural sciences better, but because I wanted really to understand the way in which, you know, particularly evolution, you know, way in which um, uh, landscapes and uh, living organisms developed and evolved. Mm. So I was more interested in that than I was in describing them. Yeah. Yeah, I can see, I can see some, some parallels. <laughs> uh, and, and then, so then eventually you would have gone to university? Yep. Which was? I wanted to do a degree, a joint honours degree in geology and zoology. I wanted to be a paleontologist. Uh, looking back now, I can't imagine uh, where I would have worked. Perhaps the Natural History Museum or somewhere. Uh, but I had this thing about fossils and wanted to be a paleontologist. I was rather fixated on evolutionary theory. Um, and I, there were very few places where you could do geology and zoology in the 1970s. Um, and I ended up doing a London University uh, degree externally at Portsmouth, um, uh, where I did geology, zoology in the first year. And then I switched to, because uh, I realised after a year that I wanted to do more, was more, much more interested in uh, the philosophy of science and political geography. So I switched really mid midway from being a natural scientist into being uh, someone more interested in human affairs and politics. Mm. And at this point, were you getting involved in, was your political consciousness? Political consciousness? I was actually a member of the Ecology Party. Uh, this was before the Greens. Um, I remember joining the Ecology Party. I'd read Ehrlich and Ehrlich's um, population time bomb in the 70s um, and all about resource constraints and sustainability. Um, uh, I think I was in the Ecology Party for about a year and a half. And I, I thought, no, this is the, the, they don't seem to appreciate the concepts of scarcity. Um, and... Um, um, uh, and so I left the Ecology Party, um, but I didn't join any other political party. I was simply involved in, um, you know, enjoying myself at university. I wasn't mm. involved in politics at all. Mm. So when did you first get involved in local government following university? Um, I wanted, I was doing a PhD, I'd graduated, and I was doing a PhD, but I, I wanted, um, uh, I wasn't sponsored, didn't get a grant to do a PhD, um, and so I wanted a job, and I found a job in Tower Hamlets, and I was able to get the job simply because I grew up in Tower Hamlets. I didn't tell them I was a graduate, and I thought they wouldn't hire me, um, and so and so I got the job uh, along with uh, along with a couple of other people. Uh, to work in homeless families in Tower Hamlet's social services department, because this was before the 1977 Housing Homeless Persons Act. Um, I got the job, really, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll work in local government and I'll be completing my PhD in the evenings. Um, and um, uh, I, I mean, it was a fantastic job. Um, uh, you know, it was 40 years ago, mm. and I can still remember... Not the names, but I can certainly remember, I can put in my mind's eye some of the uh, people I housed, some of the stresses and emotions that they faced, even now. Um, uh, it was an area that I knew, I'd grown up in East London, and I knew, knew where people were living and the pressures they were under. Um, this was at a time when a um, large number of Bangladeshis from Silets were coming into London and were uh, subject to lots of racism in the, in the housing market, including the social housing market. 
and the GLC still existed. Um, and so I worked for the Tower Hamlets Council and it had probably something like 40% of the social housing there, 60% was owned by the GLC. Um, uh, and I thought at the time I'd be working in local government doing this sort of job for uh, two to six years till I finished my PhD and I'd go into academia where I knew I was much more at home really. So I was doing a lot of work in the daytime but um, academic stuff at night. That was the... So what, what changed? What made you remain in local government rather than... Um, two things really. I think the, the, the fact that I realised that I could actually achieve betterment um, public betterment, that is, um, uh, working in local government. Um, I moved from Tower Hamlets to Bexley, where I worked for four years in a housing social services department. I was the, uh, the person that did research and policy for both housing and social services, and this was 79 to 83. Um, and working across those two domains of housing and social, social services was itself fascinating. Um, but actually, I could see that I could make improvements in what social services were doing. This was, you know, I actually introduced uh, computer systems to social work, and and also um, I remember doing the council's mortgage system on a Commodore PET, um, um, and I did a, a very rudimentary form of housing allocations policy on a on an Apple Mac that when it first came out in the early 80s. Um, uh, so I could actually improve. Uh, services and it could ha that could have an effect. Um, whereas what I was doing in the evening, uh, still completing my PhD, was of no interest to anybody um, other than myself. Um, and so, um, and so I realised that actually um, I could both get the variety and diversity of challenge, both personal, professional, and intellectual in local government, but also get reward and that that be relatively fast-paced, whereas in academia, you know, um, they're even slower than auditors, um, if I might say. You know, the auditors are telling you what you may have done two years ago, whether that was right or wrong. Academics might take another decade to tell you whether it was right or wrong. And I'm, I'm really a sort of mix of both. I, I want to do analysis, but I want to draw a conclusion and then implement something. And I think that's much more managerial. Um, Although I was, I came in through a sort of policy route. I felt much more managerial because I wasn't just analysing, analysing, analysing. I was analysing to draw a conclusion, to do something. So you, you've kept that interest in academia, you, but you've never regretted not going into it full time. No, I've never regretted it. Um, uh, but I have kept the interest. Yes, I mean I still read academic journals now, um, and and from two, um, the thing is, as an academic geographer. Uh, it's a very derivative discipline. Um, it basically basically looks at uh, spatial geographical patterns or absence of patterns um, and tries to ex first to describe and then to exp understand and then to use them explanatory in relation to the economy, politics, uh, social networks and life. Um, you know, at the moment, I think this is terribly, terribly important in relation to industrial strategy and trading strategy. Um, so having that sort of derivative discipline means that you, you can't just uh, focus on, I don't know, pattern, geographical spatial patterns. You have to understand, you know, the social fabric, the political fabric, um, but also coming from a natural science background, I always tend to think... Um, uh, about probabilities and uncertainties and randomness as well. Um, uh, and so I'm always trying to, you know, I'm always trying to keep ahead of um, developing ideas in a, in a number of different disciplines. And thinking back to the politics of that time, what was the, in Tower Hamlets and <coughs> Bexley, presumably very different, different political contexts, what are your memories and impressions of the, the national and the local politics and the, the interaction uh, Well, the national politics really came about because of the um, election of the Margaret Thatcher government. Um, uh, the, the, the politics, of, I mean, um, 
uh, a locally based politics in Tower Hamlets at the time was quite moribund, uh, Labour controlled, uh, quite moribund. I wasn't in any way engaged or involved in it, nor even um, uh, wondering to comment on it, uh, particularly at this time, in terms of what it was like in the late 70s. Because um, it then went through a very odd period, uh, Tower Hamlets, because it had decentralisation. The uh, into their neighbourhood, their 12 neighbourhood schemes, and then of course they had notoriety because the um, British National Party or the National Front took control of the Isle of Dogs at the time. Um, uh, I, I do think that um, what happened was that the, the, the modernity that came about as a result of, and, and a lot of people wouldn't use this term in terms of Thatcherism, but I would say it was, the modernity that came from Thatcherism, which was essentially bringing um, private sector disciplines to public service. Um, uh, yes, that that came in, that was then applied in relation to the quasi-market approach to the public sector, um, uh, with compulsory competitive tendering for local government. And you see modernity because it was breaking up traditional patterns? Yeah, very much so. It was breaking up. I mean, um, I could not in any way uh, say that the what I saw um, when I worked in the 1970s in the public sector was in any way something that should be retained. I thought some of the uh, practices were um, complete pr producer-provider based, um, internalised, looked at their own needs rather than the public's needs. Um, and I could see um, that this was ripe for change and actually, there were many ways in which, um, first, compulsory competitive tendering, and secondly, the what, would, what you might call the, um, the consumerism that came about in the John Major years, uh, with um, sort of you know customer charters and so on, um, which was all about um, desperately trying to get local government to, and the rest of the public sector, public sector to look outwards. I mean, this was used. If I remember, go back to John Stewart, who's um, Professor John Stewart at Birmingham. I mean, he he uh, developed this notion of the public service ethos, um, and uh, was trying to develop a sort of non-Thatcherite approach, which was saying, look, yes, you do have to let go of this producerist mentality. That means you've got to have focus on what the public wants and what the public needs and what the public demands, not what you want to give them. <laughs> and um, uh, and so I I think that. Um, I mean, Christopher Hood, who's written a book on, on uh, central government, says that these, these were three decades of, uh, I mean, he looks at it in a quite um, negative way and says these are three decades of new public management that had really little effect on the cost effects of central government services. Well, he may be right, but in terms of local government services, I would say it dramatically changed um, uh, the efficiency, the productivity, the, the citizen-centric character of local government services. And by when I say it changed, new public management as an approach, um, I think it's got severe limitations, but I do think that it had an approach. But So um, it wasn't so much um, uh, what local government... Local government became, I suppose, through, because really in 1985, following the rate-capping fiascos, um, local government became much more an administered part of central government, much more directed. Um, I think it wasn't until 85, local government was still believing that it really commanded its own destiny in, its, in the localities by putting up rates at this level or whatever. And it was from 85 onwards that really it became much more of a, um, an instrument of central government policy. Um, uh, some of the things that happened were really good. I think some things are absolutely dreadful. So 1985 really changed the character? Of yes, and, and look, at the time, it's, it, it does merit uh, me, and I, I think I, I ought to say that from 1982 to 86, I was a Labour councillor in Southwark. Um, and so I was elected in 82. I got involved in uh, Labour politics, um, got elected in 1982. Uh, um, my daughter, my uh, eldest child, was born the, the, the week I was elected. Um, and I think I regretted being elected a month after being elected. Because uh, re realised not only 
were things more important than what we were seen to be focused on. Uh, and it virtually every evening in Peckham Town Hall. Um, um, but actually, political life was much more tribal than I expected, and that my personal approach to things was probably overly rational um, to be involved in the politics of the mid 1980s. Um, but I was, um, you know, modestly, moderately successful at it. Um, uh, I was involved in the rate capping things. I set the rates in Southwark. I personally advanced the rates in Southwark. Um, and so I know a lot about that period, and particularly the period when, um, uh, you know, those 15 councils were taking themselves to the brink um, and trying really by not setting rates somehow to, I mean, this was a sort of self-harm strategy, I think, a community harm strategy, yeah. but somehow to try to change government policy. Um, and I think really from 1985 onwards, um, local government has really been trying to see how it can implement government policy, not how it can destroy it. So do you think that strategy ultimately failed? It, it was trying to test... I think it created to stand up against central government and ultimately. Well, it not ultimately failed. It was a failure from the outset um, um, because um, most of us who were involved in this sort of most of the people deceived themselves in order to deceive others um, about what the, what the strategy was because the strategy of not setting rates is basically not gaining revenue and therefore not providing services to the public that's local. And so um, what you're elevating is, is the, your political strategy against the, count, against the government. You're elevating that above the duty to provide services to the public. This became, you know, this was absolutely clear from it to me from the outset, and I couldn't believe this was a strategy that people were embarked on. Um, uh, but nonetheless, they were. Um, uh, and I think but the, the raising of this political strategy to use councils to attack government in this way, I think essentially enfeebled local government thereafter um, because it demonstrated their ultimate weakness and therefore enfeebled them relative to government. And I, I think it's done a three, de three to four decades disservice to local government. But... Um, uh, some would argue that it, it was a matter of absolute principle that we are the most centralised, uh, you know, national state in the world, um, other than a couple of others that you best not mentioned, and um, uh, and that this was a, a political piece of political theatre or education worth doing. I disagreed with that at the time, um, but they, some people sincerely believed it. So apart from that four-year. Um, interregnum on Southwark um, council as a councillor. What? Where did your career lead next after Bexley? Well, I went from Bexley to Lambeth, where um, um, I couldn't have. I mean, at the time I worked in Bexley, I was literally, um, as I mentioned, implementing computer systems um, uh, for a housing department, social care department, and just. Just they would say to me, uh, could you come up with something? And I would tr desperately try to work out what the problem was and how we could solve it through new technologies or what then passed for new technologies in, in the late 1970s. And I went to uh, Lambeth, where which basically didn't have a management culture at all. In fact, the, what I noticed was that the culture in Lambeth at the time was a counterculture based around the union, more than a culture that stemmed organisationally from the politicians and the management. Um, uh, and I would uh, do an analysis of rent arrears. I remember doing an analysis of rent arrears uh, to see whether or not uh, localisation of, of rent arrear collection had uh, been effective or ineffective. What was the degree of effectiveness of it? No one had done this before. And I said, well, I'll, I'll do it. And I just did it. And everyone went on strike. And they went on strike because I hadn't sought um, uh, union clearance to doing this yeah. analysis. Um, and uh, I couldn't believe it. There was only me and the director that hadn't gone on strike. And I was a Labour councillor in the neighbouring authority. And all these people had gone on strike. Um, and, and so what being at Lambeth taught me was um, how 
well, it was also, there were some really positive things at Lamp, I have to say. So their social diversity agenda was brilliant. Um, so I was doing work on the impacts of um, uh, housing um, allocation and the impact of um, um, not just housing allocations in terms of relets, but also housing investment for black minority ethnic and uh, white households. I did a statistical analysis which I published in 1983. Um, and I also did a report on um, for them on um, uh, the lesbian and gay communities' housing needs in 1984. Now, you know, there are many councils haven't done this now. Um, uh, you know, good, good 30 years later. So Lambert's social agenda was really, really good. And I learned a lot from that about equity. I managed lots of staff. Um, managed lots of staff who were different, you know, older than me, different gender than me, different sexuality, different ethnicity. You learned an awful lot from that. What I didn't learn was about organisational management culture. So in some sense he's at the cutting edge of modernity and in other sense he's yeah. miles away. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but that, you know, and, and, and Lambeth at the time in the 80s and Tower Hamlets to some extent, uh, recruited a lot of people that wanted to work on the front line of public service mm. and and I did you know it was a place of great need uh, he wanted to work there but it, it it drew to it lots of people that also wanted to disrupt things and be political in their work yeah. uh, and so I found it very very distressing I have to say uh, because uh, there was so much talent that was misdirected um, and and I felt at the time you know there's an enormous amount of talent in in a place like Lambeth, and it wasn't directed and focused and aligned to achieve good service outcomes and social results. Um, and I often think that people in local government, you hear a lot about you know, chasing best practice. I always say, let's avoid worst practice. If you can avoid worst practice, people themselves intrinsically will try and find good practice. Um, but I think the senior manager's job is to make sure that the whole organisation or their department of it or their service area is actually functioning uh, effectively. Um, and by that I mean uh, that people are pursuing public service goals, um, not producerist goals. So, and, and then you, you arrived in, in Lewisham. Yes, I went to Lewisham. I was in Lewisham. I worked in policy. Um, I, I was effectively assistant director in housing in Lambeth, and I, I went to be a policy officer. In the, and he said, he said to me, "Why are you going to the chief execs? It's the corporate centre. It's very dilettantish." Um, and I thought that's quite interesting. You know, his view was that the corporate centre was the people that did you know frippery and flippant stuff. Um, got involved in you know novice policies that would never work um, whereas housing where I'd worked uh, both in uh, Tower Hamlets and Bexley and in Lambeth actually did practical things you know um, we built things and we let them and we repaired people's toilets and so on um, uh, whereas here I was going to the, the corporate centre um, I went to Lewisham and found it to be a really pragmatic place uh, very very pragmatic not like anywhere I'd been before it was both progressive and it wanted to achieve um, social change uh, not just in itself but in its communities um, it had been led by a leader of a council Andy Hawkins who had been the leader for 18 years um, who was the Labour leader who was the deputy leader of the AMA and who uh, his background was he was a professional HR uh, person at um, I think Shell uh, so he, he'd grown up in the private sector, he was a conscientious objector in the war, he'd learned under uh, Herbert Morrison, and he was inspiring, absolutely inspiring guy. And he um, really was the person that got Steve Bullock involved in Labour politics in, in Lewisham, and is certainly an inspiration to Steve and many others as well. Um, uh, and, you know, being in a council that was terribly pragmatic, there was also, had gone through just as Lambeth had, lots of uh, disquiet about racial injustice in South London because of uh, New Cross fire in the early 80s, uh, the National Front marching through New Cross. So it had addressed racial justice issues in a very community-based and positive way. 
And I was really drawn to that. I thought this was an excellent place. Um, but after a while, I realised that I was just the, the clever guy dra crafting policy. And I didn't really want to do that. I wanted to, uh, whereas in housing, I had developed and managed things. In, you know, just crafting policy, it seems to me. your Lambeth uh, colleague was... Was right. He was, yeah, I think he was. Pro he was a bit right. Yes. I don't know. They're dilettantish. No, I don't. Uh, I don't think. Not now in 2017, but certainly at the time, because I think things. I mean, you know, things have changed dramatically since the crash. It's in 2010. Yes. Absolutely dramatically. But uh, at that time, um, early in my career, I would say. Um, uh, you know, we really didn't appreciate um, uh, how much money we were spending, um, and, and we were just really um, trying different policies, whether they're economic development policies or social policies or whatever. Um, but I'd learned that in, in Lewisham, I'd learned that I could do the policy agenda quite well. I knew I had a background in computers and management, and I thought, well, I'll, and I went to Newham where I was in Newham for about a year and a half, and I worked in Newham on capital programme, urban programme, inner urban area programme delivery. Um, and I really enjoyed Newham, I liked it. Um, but Lewisham enticed me back to be an assistant chief executive. So I went back to Lewisham very quickly. With service responsibility? Or yes, I managed services, a few services, um, welfare rights, information giving, some corporate services. I also managed the policy, communications, and then um, uh, race relations, uh, women's equality, um, uh, various other uh, equality functions. Um, and so I led on sort of equalities really, um, and policy and service delivery. And I remember, this, is, this may be uh, more of some interest to you, I remember a very critical time when the chief exec said to me, well, uh, it was John Harwood, then subsequently went to Oxfordshire. He said, well, we're, we're going to become an, uh, uh, an educational authority. Um, the ILEA has been broken up and you've got a doctorate studying Hampshire's education system, which I have. See. And I said, yes. And he said, do you, are, do you have a teaching quality? I said, yeah, I've got a postgrad cert ed. He said, well, you could be our first director of education. Do you want to be? And I said, no. And he said, well, the other option is, is working on compulsory competitive tendering. And I said, no, I'll do that. Right. Now, I, I actually don't know many people that have said that. Mm -hmm. and, 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 I, and I thought about it afterwards, why did I say it? And I said it because I felt that I'd sort of rather mastered this area of education. So why would I want to go and stay in it again? Mm. Um, um, whereas I knew nothing about contracts for street sweeping or, um, you know, I remember the first contract I got involved in was the vehicle maintenance contract and then the highways maintenance and then the refuse collection and then, so I'd never been involved in that sort of contracting, so I learnt much more yeah. and that's what I want was all the more curious to know more about things yeah. rather than to specialise in the same thing. And, and I also have to say that I remember before leaving to go to Newham, I was asked, um, there was a job came up, Assistant Director of Finance in Lewisham, and I applied for it, and I wasn't shortlisted. And I said, well, why wasn't I shortlisted? They said, well, you don't have an accountancy qualification. I said, well, can't take that long to do accountancy. I said, so you double entry bookkeeping. He said, how long will it take? And they said, well, but you can't be in charge of accountants if you're not yourself qualified. And I said, well, I've got a doctor. I can, surely I can do this. Um, and they said, no, no, you couldn't possibly do it. I mean, the irony, of course, is that I then came back to be the chief exec of the council in charge of the person that said you couldn't get the job. But, um, um, but I, I was always looking to do something that I wasn't expert in. Yeah. And CCT, it wasn't being resisted in Lewisham? It wasn't resisted in the way it has elsewhere. So if I, uh, the example I would give is that we, um, in Lewisham, when I went, uh, um, you know, when I was chief exec when I was appointed as chief executive, uh, I would say we were then uh, one of the most uh, pragmatic authorities. We had a mixed economy of service provision model, really from 1990 
six, mm. um, before the Blair government, we were looking at mixed economy of service provision, um, believing that municipalism wasn't the solution. Um, um, it may be that some of the solutions we come up with weren't the solution either, but um, um, so we had that approach and uh, that really came from an experience in competitive tendering saying actually like, some of our contractors and suppliers were extremely good and much better than what preceded it, but not all. So our street sweeping and refuge collection service was still, still in-house now. Um, but many other services aren't. Um, uh, and so I would say that the competitive tendering experience did set the, um, particularly those people that lived through the prior, the prior position like I did, set up competitive tendering. You established a positive way of approaching it where you grasped the opportunities rather than desperately trying to organise it so that everything remained in-house. Um, so at that point, you'd worked in quite a number of different uh, councils across London. Mm. Um, you must have seen a number of chief executives operate. Yep. Uh, and what uh, what were the lessons that you had drawn in advance of becoming a chief executive yourself about what that post involved and what you would do with it when you when you got the chance? Well, having been a politician, I realised that I was much more suited to being uh, an advisor than a decider. Um, uh, simply because I could rationally work through the th options and say, here's an option analysis, I think this is the way to go. And as a, as a politician, uh, I was involved in things that I wasn't expert in. And I was very angry about people who spent their daytime working in housing like I did and spent their evenings being on a housing committee. I thought this was madness. You're not. You're bringing professionalism to politics, and probably the other way around as well. Um, and so, what I wanted, what I felt was, I could um, uh, uh, use some of the, um, I suppose, analytical skills and the academic analytical skills I had um, across all the different services. Um, but when I looked at people that were chief executives. Um, and I was in my mid-thirties, I was, um, I think I applied for my first chief exec position when I was 37, um, uh, and uh, that's right, 37, and um, when so I... You, you applied to, you applied for a chief exec post before... Yes, yes, right. yes, and I, I was told by the uh, leader of the council, ten years later, that I came within one vote of getting it. Um, it, was a, it was a Labour baron out of London. Um, and, um, and I would have been appointed then, I suppose that would have been in 91. Um, <laughs> so, um, something like that. I saw, I mean, when I became a chief executive, eight of London's chief executives were also the director of finance. Mm. Not they had been, they were also the director of finance. Three were um, lawyers as well. Um, so this was before the uh, separation of responsibilities at the top level and an awful lot of people therefore had an approach to being a chief executive which is all about what I would call fiscal control, budgetary control um, because the models at the time about the roles of the centre were all about strategic coordination or strategic control and the balance between control and coordination and the extent to which you delegated and didn't delegate and whether you delegated budgetarily or did you delegate service functions. Now um, this was of course in the committee era uh, when the role of the chief executive was really about um, reinforcing the corporate and reinforcing coherence when one committee would make one decision and another committee could make another in either contradiction or certainly contrary to the other and you'd have a policy and resources committee that was supposedly trying to um, make a judgment across the two and the chief exec's role depended on um, uh, really had the balance of forces lay within the uh, majority group because it could well be that uh, say committee say the planning committee um, the members of the planning committee were making a judgment and they weren't in any way they didn't uh, reflect the political views of the overall majority group whereas the housing committee did and you could have arguments within these committees that differed from the arguments within the politics of the place. Mm. Um, and so the chief exec's role became much more about 
trying to be co trying to coordinate while understanding politics, um, um, or trying to control budgets in areas where the politicians weren't controlling. Yeah. Um, and I could see this model of fiscal, budgetary, strategic control coming from um, uh, the Westminsters of this world, uh, people like Bill Roots, um, uh, with you know really tight control of uh, expenditure, where money went, where the income was. Um, uh, where I'd worked in Bexley, controlled the chief executive, he was an auditor, um, extremely capable. His view was there's 150 services, um, the, the worst 25, I don't care, there must be a worst 25 as long as they're the right 25. You know, he had this sort of very arithmetical view about um, uh, success and failure. He wanted the, the right ones to succeed and not the wrong ones. And I said, well, who are, you, who are we to decide what's right or wrong? Surely the politicians should be deciding. Not, um, and, um, uh, but at the time, I think the role of chief executives was much more about gradually getting strategic control. And um, when I'd become a chief executive in 1993, it was just after the 91 um, mini crash, um, when uh, I remember um, the fat cats thing came up for the first time. And this was um, really um, about uh, senior executives getting paid too much and so on. And I was uh, employed on a fixed term contract um, with, with performance related pay. And mainly, I would say, this fixed-term contract performance-related pay was in order to pay me a reasonable rate because, of course, the, the, the base rate was a much lower rate and they wanted to pay additional amounts. They couldn't recruit without paying the additional amounts. Um, now, these, this fixed-term contract approach, I think, probably went into the late 90s. Um, I had two renewals of contract uh, before it was made permanent. But this, um, and you know, this took off in New Zealand, in Australia. Um, it started in the UK. Um, it soon went. One doesn't hear about it very often. Um, uh, I know of one chief executive who's just been appointed on a fixed-term contract, but that's very unusual. Um, um, but the politics of the employment of chief executives hasn't gone away. The employment, no, I, I, no, absolutely. But the, but within, I would say within eight years, certainly until the year um, 2000, heading up to the year 2000, chief executives became the Jedi Knights of the public sector. Local government chief executives like David Henshaw and, you know, Steve Bundred and um, uh, Bob Kerslake were being invited to do one review after another. Let's invite these people to do reviews. They could be, we were all invited to be on, you know, I, you've mentioned that I was on the... Um, uh, customs and Excise and then um, Revenue and Customs um, Department. I was invited to do capability reviews of the Treasury. Uh, we were like trusted individuals that understood politics, mm. that also understood delivery. And so we could be invited into the inner sanctums of, to, to helpful, you know, challenging but helpful critiques of how civil service could change. Um, uh, I think, you know, obviously uh, with the... Um, uh, to th with the crash and the 2010 uh, government, we went back down to being zeros again after being Jedi Knights <coughs> for a few years. Um, I think it's going to take us more than 10 years to get out of this. I think so. Uh, <laughs> uh, but before you became Jedi Knights, were you just thinking, thinking back to the, to the beginning, did you have any role models as a chief executive? Did you see yourself as doing something quite different? Um, I, well, I, I believe in situational leadership. Um, in other words, this, what's the situation you're in? Um, I did go because um, uh, I thought I ought to. That surely there are people doing this that, that are doing it really well in other places. I'll go to and talk to them. And I, I remember going to see Mike Pitt in Kent and spending a couple of days of him. I went to see Mike Lyons in in uh, Birmingham and spending a couple of days of him. And I did learn some things from them, but I realised that I had to apply them in my context. Um, and I'd also was still learning quite a lot uh, academically at the time from, from others. Um, I became very convinced of the mayoral model because I'd been to the States a couple of times and spoken to some academics over there and some others, um, uh, city managers. 
and realised that actually there were different ways of doing this. And so I was always on the lookout for, you know, what places seem to be doing it well? And who's doing it? Is it the... And, and generally, I think it is uh, a progressive coalition of politicians and managers who want to achieve positive change in our area. And it doesn't take many people. It probably takes about 10 uh, politicians and about 20 managers. Yeah. Uh, but if they're working together, not, you know, not uncritically, um, but if they're working together and, and they understand one another and they're working in some sort of alignment, then I think that you can really achieve a lot yeah. in cities. Um, uh, and by achieving a lot, I don't mean a lot organisationally, I mean a lot for your community. And you do that if the politicians and the managers are working together. And I could see, I could see that in some places and I could try to influence how we did it in Lewisham. Yeah. But it's, you know, there's no alchemy, there's no magic ingredient. Let's try and do what Mike Lyons did in Birmingham and apply it in... Because actually, like, we've got different people than he's got and we've got very different circumstances and our heritage and legacies are different and our inertia is different. But nonetheless, there are things we can learn from it. And I was always open to that. Um, uh, the people in London, I think, were, were very good at the time. I mean, I learned a lot from people like Steve Bundred. Because um, um, he and I were complementary, really. I was a much more of a policy, social policy person. He was much more about fiscal and budgetary control. We learnt a lot from each other, I have to say, um, sort of sharing um, ideas. But it's, there was others as well, many, there were many good people, um, uh, many very, very good uh, chief execs I've learnt from, but other specialists as well. And on that relationship between the chief executive and a leader or, or a mayor, um, so you've said there's obviously a very important distinction between giving advice and making decisions, but also that that relationship exists with a situation of a particular context. But is there any any advice, any reflections that you would pass on to today's generation? I think that the chief executive is the complementor. By that I mean um, uh, you've got to develop a complementary approach with the leader mm-hmm. while being <coughs> yourself. Um, and so if you differ in style and approach from the leader uh, or the mayor, then uh, you've got to work out ways whereby you're adding value. Not um, uh, saying, well, this I want to be my authentic best self, and actually um, this crowds out the leader's opportunities or the mayor's opportunities. Um, I think, well, you've got to be, you are the complementor. You are, you, so you have to work with uh, the leader that you have um, uh, it may not be the leader that appointed you, it may not be, um, and I think there's too much uh, emphasis on uh, chemistry of appointments, people liking each other, I think this is nonsense. Um, um, I think what's important is you have very good uh, respectful role understanding, that I understand the role of the political leader, the political leader understands my role, there's an overlap, we understand how we operate in the overlap, I know what to do, he knows what to do, we check with one another, that's, that's uh, right. Um, there's, um, there's always elements of cross-dressing where you know, the, 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 the politician meddles in management and the manager steals public interest decisions, steals political decisions. Um, uh, I think it's the respect, you know, it's only really the perspective of the chief executive and the leader that understands, hold on, there's too much, hold on, there's a bit too much cross-dressing going on here. Uh, there's too much, managers are making decisions that really ought to be politicians, or why are politicians doing this at the moment? It's not really political, is it? Why are they doing it? Is it a displacement activity? So there's got to be something so, structural that reinforces... The yeah, you, have to, you must have um, governance codes of conduct about mutuality of role and respect of role. Um, uh, but, you know, uh, and, and I don't think, uh, I remember having a great conversation with a person I've got the, I had the highest respect for, which is Simon Milton, when he was the leader of Westminster, about, um, and he was talking to me about uh, someone, uh, he was talking to me about myself and how 
myself working in a sort of Westminster environment. By that he meant a Westminster Council, a conservative environment. I'd done most of my career in a, in a Labour environment. I'd been a Labour politician. And, um, you know, we were talking about the importance of respecting role rather than any sense of being party pre or connecting with some agent political agenda. Um, and I think it's absolutely critical. There's far too many uh, people are assuming that they appoint someone who they like, who agrees with them emotionally, and who can functionally do their role. I think that's not enough. Looking back, what are the achievements that you're most proud of? I think Lewisham's social achievements in its community, its Afro-Caribbean community, particularly in relation to the New Cross fire. Uh, I personally was involved in that, but I, uh, by taking part in a parliamentary inquiry to really give push for a, a second inquest, uh, this was a very, very difficult scar on the whole of the uh, uh, black and minority community in South London, where 18... Uh, young people died in a fire in the early 80s um, and it was never discovered what the cause of the fire was and I thought it wasn't just the act of what we did for the immediate families is what we were saying about uh, the importance of this um, and I've been asked a number of times what I feel most proud of and yes there's loads of service achievements and there's lots of in inward investment and there's lots of um, awards and all this sort of thing but actually um, uh, gaining the respect of vulnerable people, uh, gaining the respect of people who are living at risk and disadvantage, um, uh, seems to me to be the height of uh, public service. And um, uh, you know, if we were delivering no services at all, we would still that still local government would be needed for purposes of community self-governance, uh, so that people lived harmoniously with each other rather than at each other's throats um, and um, so there's loads and loads of things we've done on service change and I've done an awful lot uh, but I you know I do think being trusted by uh, a broad group of your community is the most important thing you can achieve. What do you think has changed in the government since the crash in 2008? Well, obviously, the biggest thing has been the um, government's imposition of an austerity programme. Um, I say imposition, they chose an austerity programme. At the time, I believe that they were right to choose it, although I think that they chose a, a too steep an austerity programme and they've continued it, in my view, for... Too, they plan to continue it for too long. Um, but I think the, what has happened across this period since the early 2000s is that the audit commission in its approach to comprehensive performance assessment essentially provided a template for councils uh, that said if you organize yourself in this way if you organize your resources in this way your human resources in this way your um, planning of budgets in this way um, then you'll be successful and you will achieve a five-star status or you'll be excellent and so this encouraged really a process of convergence where people copied the best or they learnt from the, um, uh, other, uh, the, the, the audit commission process or the Ofsted process. And that process of convergence meant you went from one authority to another and things were organised roughly the same, people were doing roughly the same thing um, and they were pursuing the same sort of strategies. Um, since 2010, with the abolition of the audit commission, and the sense that local government could solve its own problems and was masters of its own destiny, I think what's happened has been there's been much greater divergence. Not only has there been much greater challenge, because in the previous 10 years, local government was actually spending more money each year, doing ever newer things, probably the zenith of that being total place. Um, uh, thereafter, it was spending less money each year, trying to do the same things, um, but not having any, anyone to copy and not having any model to copy. And therefore what you had was this divergent approach or divergent approaches. And I think at some point we got, we've gone from always divergence to disarray, where um, literally councils 
uh, can make up something and say, well, we're doing this in our locality because this is what locally we think's right and this is what locally we think's needed, when actually there's maybe no evidence to support this at all, other than it's the predilection of the senior managers and the politicians that happen to be there. And there's no one to say, actually, the evidence is that this is wrong um, and that you're pursuing the wrong path. Now, I'm not saying that convergence was absolutely right, but I think a divergent approach which enables um, uh, any you know, flowers to bloom uh, may be a wasteful one. And was another feature of that um, in the 2010 government that DCLG had an approach which was they saw local government as hubristic and had to be kind of put back in their box uh, and on the other hand, coming out of the Treasury, there was the, the idea of the Northern Powerhouse that was that had a vision for growing a, a, new, a new kind of local government based on broader coalitions and new well, kinds of leadership. Well, I think it wasn't until um, the 2010, it wasn't until the George Osborne Chancellorship, really, that sub-regional economy, economics, or regional economics and sub-regional economics um, came to the fore. Uh, obviously, there was a period under under Labour where regionalism, but that was almost like regional politics, wasn't regional economics. Um, uh, but the sort of regional economics and sub-regional economics came to the fore under the Osborne uh, era, and I think that did, um, and that made a lot of sense in Manchester, where of course all the authorities, uh, to some to some different levels, all the authorities that are working in concert, led by Manchester City Council, um, could act regionally in ways that are very difficult in other parts of the country. Um, and I think this sort of regional economic agenda, um, uh, really, which um, is much more a city's agenda, really. It's not a English agenda. It's not a conservative agenda. It's not really a natural. English conservative agenda, which is much more about how to connect the Shire County growth with the cities that they're adjacent to. Um, that agenda, I think, did play to local government and did mean that a lot of uh, senior um, chief executives or chief executives were appointed from an, you know, to, in a sense, work on the local economy. Now, I, I would argue that, there, that the, the scope for so doing is, is marginal and that many of them were essentially chasing you know, a very small fraction of mobile capital around parts of the country. Uh, but nonetheless, I think focusing local government on having a healthy economy is very positive. Uh, but I think it's resulted in some uh, councils being overly, uh, excessively optimistic about what they can achieve in their, in their localities. Uh, but I do think connect, reconnecting local government at a uh, and above individual under, local authority level to their economy is the right thing. And, and if, that's the, if that's the case, then what future local government well, in context? Well, I, I think the future of government is um, uh, both um, troubled, challenging, uh, but it's also uh, potentially very bright. Um, and that's because I think that we're in a very odd era. Um, uh, let's hope that this, well I think this era will continue and uh, get f uh, even more difficult personally. Um, uh, that's because I think that social media is producing a, a sort of distracted age. Um, uh, people are easily distracted, uh, unable to concentrate on things both at work and at home. Um, uh, are continually looking at public institutions and saying um, well we shouldn't trust them I've got no confidence in them so the trust and confidence that's held in public institutions of all sorts including political parties including local government including national government is at its lowest um, and declining um, we should always be pleased that there's a decline of deference but we shouldn't be pleased uh, that there's a um, you know prol proliferation of um, ignorance um, and so um, I do think that um, local government's challenges are about uh, acting trustworthily in the provision of services for the next generation, of changing services in the next generation, of making uh, what we do relevant to the needs of the next generations 
um, and doing so in a fast-paced way. Um, I think it's incredibly difficult so to do, but I think for local government people to do that, they've got to develop three E's, if I could say this. Um, uh, the first, and it's not efficiency, economy and effectiveness, which was the old three E's of the Audit Commission. What it is, is ethics. I think we've got to focus on um, being much more attuned to the ethical dilemmas and conundrums in which um, the populations that we face, the service users that we provide services to, are situated. Um, so, and the ethical considerations that individuals face when we take their kids into care are different than the ethical considerations when we're asking them to recycle. Um, and we provide information to them and they say, is this information trustworthy or not? We don't believe it. You know, we don't think you're recycling properly. Um, um, and that's different, again, from the ethical considerations where two people are competing over one bit of land and we have to make a judgment about which of these people gets this land. Um, so one, I think we have to have a much, much better understanding of ethics than we ever do. And ethics should be part of our learning. The other is, I think, we've really got to... Um, uh, be much more empathetic with the, uh, uh, citizens and service users. Um, uh, professionals are taught, whether they're planners or psychologists uh, or accountants or whatever, professionals are essentially taught, uh, as are academics like me, taught to have disinterested, dispassionate detachment. Mm -hmm. Because that way you can make, be, uh, make a much more objective understanding of the situation. Um, but actually to influence people, I'm afraid, disinterested, detached, <laughs> dispassionate goes nowhere. Um, you've got to empathise with where people are and be able to uh, convince them, not just through irrisome facts as a chart, look at this pie chart, surely this can change your mind, um, but actually on the basis of your detached analysis, be able to describe things in a way that is appreciative of where people are, that you can stand in their shoes and see where they are. So I think you don't just got to use ethics, you've got to use a lot of empathy. And I think finally, you've got to use, we've got to be more efficient. Um, um, and that's because taxpayers are simply not going to give us the money. Um, if, if you roll forward just um, 23 years to where we are, there will be, uh, under current estimates, 1.7 million 90-year-olds in UK, which is the population of Birmingham and Sheffield combined. Um, there's currently only 560,000 90-year-olds. So our ageing population um, uh, means that there'll be considerable pressure on social care and health care and other things and um, uh, we and the working age population as a ratio of the people who depend on us is dropping. And therefore, um, it's not a case of paying tax to, uh, um, to fund the services. There won't be enough people to pay tax to fund the people that are needing it. But the robots are going to be paying tax. The, the robot, well, yeah, but someone's, someone somewhere along the line has got to pay the robots. Um, <laughs> Uh, so I don't think yeah, we can't all rely on Bill Gates's uh, uh, tax. I mean, uh, unfortunately, um, and, you know, no, look, if I can return a bit to my geography, um, there's a, probably the most, the, the, the Brits who's had the biggest impact on world value uh, went to Newcastle Polytechnic in the 1980s, named Johnny Ive, who's the chief design officer for Apple. Um, grew up in Chingford, um, uh, went to university to study industrial design. Uh, Apple make, I think, 20% of their profits um, from the iPhone, uh, or make 20% profit from all of their stuff. The iPhone is made in, uh, um, in the Henan uh, province in China, uh, where they have half a million workers um, in working for Foxconn, uh, producing these things. And we're buying it over here. You know, we've got this. We've got the geographical dislocation of um, design, production, distribution, exchange, and consumption. You know, you can't buy anything that was made locally um, because very, very little stuff is. We are incredibly dependent on an ever more globalizing world, where value we can't control. 
and all we want is um, uh, public services to be ever more effective and they're going to have to be ever more effective on a, on a dwindling working age population um, uh, and to do that we've got to be incredibly efficient um, and I think this challenge of being ever more efficient by self-service, by not being there, um, by getting people to do things themselves, uh, is going to be a real challenge for local government people going forward. But if they don't, if they can't understand ethics and they can't conduct themselves in an empathetic way, and they're not efficient, they won't cut it. And on that summary of the Zeitgeist, Barry, it's been a pleasure. Thank okay. you very much. Thank you. That's pretty much it for the latest edition of Local Government Leaders. Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Barry Quirk, Chief Executive of the London Borough of Lewisham, and still a Jedi Knight. If you have any feedback, comments on the series so far, please do get in touch. I'm on Twitter, at Bennett Mike, or you can email me at mike.bennett at publicintelligence.co.uk. Please subscribe uh, via iTunes, download from SoundCloud, uh, where you'll also be able to find my conversations with Gary Porter, the Conservative Chairman of the LGA, and Jim McMahon, Labour's National Local Government Spokesman and a Parliamentary Candidate, defending his seat in next month's general election. Local Government Leaders is a regular series, and we have a strong pipeline of leading figures from local government lined up for future episodes. If you're interested in supporting or sponsoring the series, please be in touch. Thanks again for listening to the Local Government Leaders podcast, which is produced by Public Intelligence and the MJ. My name is Mike Bennett, and I hope you will tune in again soon for the next episode, where I will be in conversation with Baroness Scott, Jane Scott, the leader of Wiltshire Council. <laughs>